that we in the West have become somewhat obsessed with the pursuit of perfection. I doubt, actually, whether any of us have ever actually encountered the perfect, the flawless, the infallible, in anything or anywhere in our lives. And yet, the belief, the myth, that the perfect exists, that we can achieve it, indeed that we should achieve it, is a myth that we can continue to subscribe to. Our own life experience, probably every step of the way, contradicts this myth. We meet the imperfect. We meet the flawed. We meet that which is fallible in so many things. In people that don't live up to our expectations. In ourselves when we don't live up to our expectations, in the things that we find ourselves craving for, how rarely it is that our cravings actually conform to what we expected to get. And yet this life experience that we have of meeting that which is imperfect, seems to do a little to shake our beliefs, our hopes, our dreams, our fantasies that the perfect exists somewhere and that it's something we should achieve. This belief in perfection, our desire for it, sometimes our demand for it, is a desire and a demand that actually shapes so many of the compulsions and the obsessions that move us in our lives. How often our lives can become an endless, sometimes a desperate search for one more thing that will make the perfect a reality for us. How often we find ourselves searching outside of ourselves for just that peace that seems to be missing what we don't always realize in that searching for the peace that is missing is the degree to which we divest ourselves of authority. We don't always realize the degree to which we disempower ourselves as we turn to experts again and again and again in different roles and different identities who somehow we think will act as intermediaries, they will act as guides, or they will tell us how to become perfect and how to find the perfect. In this pursuit of the perfect, we can become quite relentless, also so terribly judgmental and so very harsh in our relationship to others and in our relationship to ourselves. This obsession, inner obsession, with becoming perfect or with conforming to our ideas of perfection is the very root of self-denial. 
the very root of the self-negation which can shadow us in our lives. This pursuit of perfection certainly has a history and a background. It's not as if we can blame ourselves for this obsession with the perfect that can so much govern our lives. We grow up on a literary, on a media, on a cultural diet which constantly presents us with models, with images of perfection, of what it means to have the perfect life, what it means to have the perfect relationship, what it means to have the perfect job. If you watch television or or even go to the movies, you also have presented to you little packages of even what it means to have the perfect drama or the perfect crisis in your lives. Those messages are delivered to us again and again through the media, through our fairy tales, through celluloid images. And sometimes, you know, in our saner moments, we dismiss these models and images of perfection and think this is just fantasy. This is not real. However, sanity is not always what propels us in our lives. And it's also true that these Hollywood fantasies of perfection become the basis of many of our hopes, many of our dreams, and many of our own personal fantasies. What are we promised in our culture? What are we promised in our background? We are promised that it is possible for us to have it all, to have everything, that it's possible for us to reach perfection on one condition, we have to be good enough to do that. What this leads to is this state of expectancy I was speaking about the other night. Unexpectancy makes a visible expression in two ways. On one, in one way, expectancy is translated into waiting, a kind of passive expectancy, waiting for our own golden moment to arrive, waiting for the missing piece, for our own personal jigsaw to be found, waiting for the right person to come along, or the right job, or the right answer, or sometimes here we find ourselves waiting for the right insight, the right piece of information. The other expression of expectancy is when it is translated into pursuit, the active expectancy, not the passive expectancy, but the active expectancy of pursuing outwardly and inwardly a whole agenda of things, of goals, of attainments, of possessions, of ideas, of identities, that somehow we think are going to allow us to arrive at a particular destination. And the way that we see that destination in our minds often is that it's a destination of perfection. This pursuit or this passivity 
whichever form it takes, can become a kind of addiction in our lives, where we're always looking for something more, always looking for something else than just what is. Sometimes we call that pursuit by names that feel more acceptable to us or more acceptable to others. Sometimes we call that pursuit ambition or growth or self-improvement or positive bringing about positive changes. And it's sometimes it is true that searching for something, searching for change, describes an appropriate and the same response to things or situations in our lives which are unacceptable and unfulfilling. But it is more often true that the pursuit of that one thing more describes an unconscious obsession, an unconscious dissatisfaction and discontent where there's a denial of what is, where there's a negation of what is, and instead what is substituted for actuality is fantasy. That state of expectancy is possibly one that is fairly familiar to us. You know what it feels like to feel that kind of inner discontent, that kind of edginess within ourselves, where things, including ourselves, are never quite good enough. Where outwardly or inwardly, we feel we never quite do it right. You know, like there's some piece missing in how we're doing it. Others do it all right, or seem to do it all right. But we feel often within ourselves that it's just not quite good enough. We may be familiar with that feeling. We may also be familiar with the kind of secret world, the secret inner world of fantasies and projections of who we can become, who we'd like to become, what we would like to become. We probably have a whole description of this that will bring us the contentment or the happiness we think will be found there. It is important to see that this state of expectancy is so contrary to any level of peace, contrary to any depth of serenity, contrary to any depth of contentment. Expectancy, the state of expectancy, has so little relationship to harmony, to being in harmony with the present, being in harmony with ourselves, Because whenever this state of expectancy exists, we're always pushed by it, always pulled by it towards the next moment, towards the future, which promises us something. And this expectancy is so often what leads to becoming, the desire to become, the desire to become something, the desire to become someone, convinced that we can become someone through forcing change. When we experience restlessness, we are directly experiencing that state of expectancy. When we experience agitation and avoidance, 
we are also experiencing that state of expectancy, that something is missing, that something, whatever it is we look for, lies separate and apart from where we are, from who we are. A restlessness that can become chronic and extreme in our lives, ending up in a kind of even a struggle and a war with ourselves and our actuality. Part of this expectancy and part of this obsession with perfection is the belief that we will find perfection through ridding ourselves of the imperfect or ridding ourselves of all that we label and describe as being imperfect. And what is the imperfect? That which we cannot make room for in our hearts that which we cannot accept as it is. So much of what we describe of the imperfect is no more than this. So much of that which we feel we have to get rid of is no more than that which we can't make room for in our hearts because of our own reactions. Expectancy so much disempowers us. This belief that the perfect lies apart and separate from now so much disempowers us because there seems to be such a gap between our ideals of perfection and our actualities. And so often we just feel unable, we just feel incapable of bridging that gap, of making the changes that we feel are needed if we're to become the perfect person with the perfect lifestyle and the perfect mind and the perfect body and the perfect relationship to the world. We try hard. Often we make extraordinarily heroic efforts in this pursuit of perfection. How many years do we dedicate to redecorating our minds, redecorating our worlds when possible, but redecorating our minds very conscientiously? We often do all the right things, all the things that are prescribed to us that will help us to find the perfect. We do all the things that we can to live up to standards of physical attractiveness, of achievement, to have the right personality and the right intellect. All the things that we feel will define and mark the perfect person and the perfect life. Much of our consumer society exists simply to solve this addiction to perfection and this obsession with perfection. Much of our industry, much of our consumer products exist solely to solve this obsession and addiction. If we were to renounce, if there was to be a massive renunciation of images of perfection, there would also be a massive unemployment. What directs us in our movement towards something, to have something, to gain something, to achieve something. And no matter how hard we try, it's always so very disappointing to feel that we never really quite arrive. But does the elusiveness of our goal of our perfection, does our failure to meet up to our images of perfection, Does this make us question the myth of perfection? Really? Instead, often of failure or 
failure to find the images we look for, failure to conform to those images, it often just inspires us to look to more experts for answers or to blame ourselves. It's my fault. There's something wrong with me. Sometimes in our worst moments we think, of course, it's something wrong with the world. But in our better moments, we tend to think, well, is something wrong with me? I didn't try hard enough. Or I haven't got what it takes. I haven't got the right karma or whatever. Or I've got too many problems. And the solution to this failure to find the goal we're looking for is often felt to be just to try harder. To try harder. To alter more, to modify more, to become more. And this way of seeing is what leads so directly to the busyness in our lives that suffocates spaciousness and calmness. And yet, we are often reassured by busyness. We see that in meditation. Often we are reassured by busyness, by the feeling of doing something, of having somewhere to go, and of doing it right, of getting it right, is often very reassuring to us. Because it seems to protect us in some way from being a failure in our own eyes, in the eyes of others. I would mention how often people have spoken when they come to individual meetings with us about how the day is being spent rehearsing for the interview, about what they should say, you know, how they should say it, what they've been doing, how they're doing it, and how much of that rehearsal, sometimes sane and rational, and sometimes, too, that rehearsal lies within a deeply rooted insecurity about approval, about doing it right, about being good enough, about being perfect. And it's a difficult one to let go of. It's a shadow that is often so unconscious in our lives. To unravel this addiction to perfection, it is important to know that this addiction always coexists with an image, an image of what the perfect is. Sometimes those images are very clearly formulated in our minds. And sometimes those images are very, very vague and unconscious. To ask yourself what ideas you might hold, what images you might have of what it means to be good enough, to be perfect, to be ideal, to be a star yogi. Five-star yoga. It's not, often when we begin to look at it, we realize we do have those images. They're fed to us all the time of what it means to have a perfect body and a perfect relationship and a perfect spiritual experience, particularly. The visible path of this obsession is looking for an experience that fits in with our image. Our images are part of our personal histories that we've absorbed and that we've constructed. Our images carry the standards of other people. 
they also carry our own personal expectations that have been built upon those standards. The image of the perfect body is shoved in our face throughout our lives. We know the perfect body is not troubled by erosion, by aging, by sagging, by waste, by size. This image is one that has a remarkable power for us. We have a standard of what, what it is to have a perfect personality, to be liked, to be admired. Images that are fed to us through so many sources, images that are built on the foundation of disapproval. How to be nice, how to be liked in the world, how to be approved of, how to be loved, how learning how to see ourselves again and again through the eyes of others rather than through our own eyes. We look for the perfect spiritual path. Isn't it true when something goes amiss in your meditation? How easy it is to think, you know, well, this is probably not the right practice for me or possibly not the right teachers or not the right environment. If I could find the right one, everything would be all right. How often are they encounter with the difficult? That is when our images of perfection arise. That is when our images of perfection become conscious. And that is when, if they're followed, our images of perfection disconnect us even more severely from what is. These images have a lot of power for us because these images spell one thing. I have arrived. Most yogis long for arrival. Most, most meditators have an idea of arrival in mind, of a time that will come in their spiritual lives where they can kind of retire in an enlightened way and not have to observe anymore, not have to make effort anymore, not have to look anymore, not have to look for, in, not even have to understand anything anymore, that it's just all clear and I can say, I've arrived. We have those images. Those images, too, spell to us success. They, they spell out for us the end of pain, and they spell for us approval. One way these images don't spell is freedom. None of our images spell freedom in any way. Our images are our dictators, and they feed our addiction to perfection. What would we do? What would we live like? How would we experience ourselves if we would just let go of all images of becoming and shared and perfection. What difference, what kind of difference would that really make in our lives? What would we do if we didn't feel compelled to strive for something, to become someone? How do we begin to let go of our images? How do we begin to let go of this habit of waiting, of expectancy. It's hard to imagine. 
Sometimes it might seem that to let go of our images, our perfection, is a kind of prescription for passivity or indifference or flatness. We may feel that if we let go of these images, we don't have any reason to do anything, that we just kind of sink into obscurity or, or spend the rest of our lives glued to a zaffir, staring into nothingness, or drifting like a shadow through life, like a, like a robot. We might feel that if we let go of these images and not have any reason to do anything, that our lives would have no meaning, that we would become nobody. The first thing that we encounter in meditation is the power of our images. And that is a microcosmic view of the power that images have in our lives. And we experience in meditation the consequences and the effects when our images are disappointed. We come to spirituality as the motivation to see more clearly, to understand what is real, to understand the truth of who we are, what it means to be conscious and alive. Often what we encounter is a forest of images, a forest of ideas. Rarely do we encounter what we expect. We want to be perfect in this too. We want to have the perfect spiritual experience, to be the perfect yogi, to have the perfect answer. And we meet here as we meet elsewhere. What that wanting does to us, how it divorces us and disconnects us. There are many ways to make wrong effort in meditation. And the most distorted kind of effort to make is to become, is to be lost in becoming lost in becoming something, lost in becoming someone, lost in becoming one with our images. Any struggle we meet in meditation with our expectations and our images is a replica of the struggle we meet in our lives. And that struggle, instead of bringing us closer to the present moment, to suchness, to the suchness of this moment, to the suchness of what is, the struggle always leads us into the world of concepts, the world of ideas, the world of what is constructed. And in that struggle, to reach the perfect, we must struggle with ourselves because the arrival at the perfect seems to be dependent upon overcoming the imperfect. This obsession this perfection is not uprooted by more striving, by more manipulation, by more molding. We all need to look at our own images. We all need to know how to befriend our images. To ask ourselves what we mean by the perfect and where it is found. When we begin to look at our images, we see how hypnotized we can become by them. But instead of struggling to them, we need to learn really how to listen to our images. Not to have them push us into making lists of what we must become and what we must get rid of. Of how we must become more generous, more loving, more kind, more compassionate, more wise, and less selfish, and less defensive, and less angry, and less greedy. These lists are rooted in clinging to images. 
They have nothing to do with actuality. They have nothing to do with Satchman. What is it that is at the heart of our images? What do those images, what are they a symbol of? What do they mean to us? We don't chase images for the sake of chasing images. They give us a message of what we're truly seeking for, which is why we need to listen to them well. So often beneath our pursuit of perfection there lies a genuine and a very authentic and deep wish for peace and freedom. Underneath our images there lies a genuine and authentic yearning for the end of pain and for the fullness of joy. It's not so much success and approval that is important to us, or that those images represent to us. Rather, those images represent to us a way of being in the world, a way of being in ourselves that's not marked by pain, that is really an expression of clarity and wisdom and freedom. And letting go of our images in the pursuit of perfection doesn't sink us into passivity. It's letting go of struggle and becoming. It's a letting go with a fascination with the next moment. And it's far easier task to let go of our images than to become perfect. And this is what is important for us to see. It's a far easier task to let go of our images than to endeavor to become perfect. When we're not lost in our images of what is, we are left just with this moment just with what is. Something we don't need to control, something that we can trust in, something that we can connect with. It is the beginning of understanding what it means to connect with suchness. The other night I mentioned a statement of Milanakos where he said that a wandering thought is the essence of wisdom. This, of course, often comes as a surprise to us when we think the idea is to get rid of the wandering thoughts so that we have this perfect meditation. It is the divided mind that seeks perfection apart from what is. It's the divided mind that seeks for perfection apart from sajna. That wandering thought that is the essence of wisdom, speaks to us of our capacity to be awake, our capacity to see, our capacity to be aware. That wandering thought that we dismiss so easily speaks to us of our aliveness, our capacity to open to learning. It speaks to us of, of what this moment offers to us seeing arising and passing, of seeing emptiness, of seeing insubstantiality. It speaks to us of creativity and understanding. It is well worth our attention and not our resistance. If one wandering thought can offer us so much, each moment offers us incredible richness. A truly spiritual path is not about becoming perfect. It is really looking 
But what kind of inner environment allows unfoldment to happen and to be seen? What kind of inner environment allows for connectedness rather than rejection? What kind of inner environment allows change to take place organically and allows letting go and understanding to take place organically? An inner environment of struggle, of denial, doesn't do this. And in an environment of spaciousness, of vision, of humility, of openness, is what allows us to learn. It's not even to think about being. You know, sometimes when we think of stepping out of becoming, we think, well, I'm just going to learn how to be. But even being can be a delusion of the mind if it's conceived of a place that we arrive at, if it's conceived as a place that we're going to rest in, if it's some kind of an idea of a state that we reach, true awareness is really not resting anywhere. It is not resting anywhere. It hasn't built a house anywhere. It hasn't established a base anywhere. It hasn't established a center anywhere, even in being. Prajnaparamita, the Sutra of Perfect Wisdom, says that true wisdom does not imagine any dharma, any phenomena, as being superior or inferior. Superior and inferior have nothing to do with suchness. And that the understanding of this is perfect wisdom. Letting go of our images of superior and inferior of worthy and unworthy, allows us to enter into this moment really in a very naked, a very open way. That there is nothing between us and what is. There's therefore nothing to struggle with. The effort we make in meditation, it's certainly not to take us somewhere else. The effort we make in meditation is the effort to be awake where we are. I'd like to read you a poem. It's called The Mind of Absolute Trust. The great way isn't difficult for those who are not attached to their preferences. Let go of longing and aversion and everything will be perfectly clear. When you cling to a hairbreadth of distinction, heaven and earth are set apart. If you want to realize the truth, don't be for or against. The struggle between good and evil is the primal disease of the mind. Not grasping the deeper meaning, you just trouble your mind's serenity. 
As vast as infinite space, it is perfect and lacks nothing. But because you select and reject, you can't perceive its true nature. Don't get entangled in the world, and don't lose yourself in emptiness. Be at peace in the oneness of things, and all errors will disappear by themselves. If you don't lose the Tao, you fall into assertion or denial. Asserting that the world is real, you're blind to its deeper reality. Denying that the world is real, you're blind to the selflessness of all things. The more you think about these matters, the farther you are from the truth. Step aside from all thinking and there's nowhere you can't go. Returning to the root, you find the meaning. Chasing appearances, you lose their source. At the moment of profound insight, you transcend both appearance and emptiness. Don't keep searching for the truth. Just let go of your opinions. There's much that we might say that we might be doing in meditation. But in so many ways, what we are really nurturing here, or opening ourselves to here, is understanding this mind of absolute trust. That has no need to take hold of anything. Not of any idea, not of any object, not of any image, not of any state. Not of any doing, and not even any thought of not doing. Learning to nurture and to open ourselves to this kind of absolute trust of just seeing, of just being present. And in that seeing, in being awake, in just being aware that all things will be revealed to us. And that that seeing has its own power of transformation that doesn't require our intervention. Male beings live free of conclusions. Male beings live with openness of heart. Male beings live with awareness. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.